Welcome to College Sports Conversations presented by the NCAA. I'm Trey Moses. Mental health is an issue that impacts large numbers of athletes, both at the professional and collegiate levels. I should know because I've had my own journey during my basketball playing days at Ball State and now professionally overseas. In hopes of continued to, continuing to raise awareness and help others, we are talking with student athletes about their personal mental health journeys and how they've overcome adversity. Our guest today is former our guest today is former North Carolina softball player, Katie Grace Owinger. Katie Grace graduated with her undergraduate degree in media and journalism and com communications this past spring. Katie Grace, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, Katie Grace, you've experienced a long and winding road during your career with the Tar Heels. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your journey? Yeah, so I, um... I started in the summer of 2017 and I was a freshman and um, I had a, a decent freshman year. Just, I feel like it was the typical freshman, like kind of robotic. You're just going through the motions, um, like learning the ropes from upperclassmen. Um, and then going into sophomore year, I started to struggle more with some mental health issues that I had previously struggled with. Um, I had been diagnosed with anxiety and a particular OCD um, diagnosis when I was in second grade. And um, my sophomore year, that kind of started coming to the surface again, especially when we started our season. Um, and so I reached out to like our mental health providers, but it just was continuously getting worse as our season progressed. Um, and then that ultimately turned into an eating disorder that um, it was OSFED, which is like other specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, and so I ended up having to withdraw from school um, after my sophomore year and seek treatment during the start of my junior um, season. So I had to take some time off from softball and I came back for the beginning of my COVID year but then when that got shut down, um, I decided that I was gonna be done with softball um, and it was the best decision for me. And then um, halfway through the season, we lost all our pitchers and I came back and finished out my career um, after undoing my medical retirement. <laughs> so that's kind of the <laughs> short version of a very long-winded story. Um, what was it like to get diagnosed with that at such an early age? It was very hard. I've actually, um, I haven't talked a lot about kind of, I had something called trichotillomania, which is an OCD diagnosis where like you pull on your eyelashes and eyebrows. And that was very like odd to like my parents, my friends, no one understood what was going on. Um, I was experiencing so much anxiety and panic to be like seven years old. And there was really not much externally going on. So everyone felt really confused, including myself. Um, and ultimately I ended up channeling that anxiety into sports, but that was kind of what became that outlet that um, served as a new coping, coping mechanism for um, that OCD that was not healthy. What? outside of sport do you do to for for self-care and to manage that yeah I um well now I have two dogs which is like my favorite thing in the whole world um and I actually got my first dog as a trained emotional support animal my sophomore year of college when everything was kind of um not going very well and I felt like taking care of her and 
in the moment I couldn't take care of myself very well. So being forced to like go outside, take care of her, make sure she was eating um, really helped me to like take care of myself as well. Um, and that was something that my providers at UNC were really good with. It was like, well, when Poppy eats, you eat. Um, and like, it feels so like, uh, I guess like elementary, but at the time that was really what I needed. For those that don't know, can you kind of explain what an eating disorder is? Yeah, so um, it kind of is tiered in a sense where like you have disordered eating and then you have an eating disorder. So disordered eating is actually like very, very common just in our society today. But um, in athletics, it's so prevalent, just the idea of you know, you need to look a certain way to perform a certain way. And that drives people to cut foods and only eat particular things. And this pattern of disordered eating really quickly, um, especially for myself and um, having had a lot of family that struggled with eating disorders and being genetically predisposed to that. Um, it was so interesting to like watch myself, I guess now look back on it and I took it to the next level where I cut out everything and would only eat two things, would exercise two times more than our team. Um, whereas other people got that same message and they kind of stayed either in a normal, um, normal ways of eating or disordered eating. So it was, I don't really know how to explain it great, but, um, it's kind of just taking that like disordered eating to another level and um, doesn't always have to do with weight loss. Like you have binge eating disorders, you have um, bulimia and anorexia and then OSFED, which is when like you have a mixture of, of different ones, which is what I had. And it can be really confusing. Like you don't fit into a specific category. Um, you're just like all around struggling with like multiple diagnoses kind of. You know, you talked about Leave, the decision to leave softball. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that sports at times um, kind of hurt your eating disability? Because I know for me personally, I wouldn't, the, by no means do I say I have eating disorder, but I really struggle with body image. Mm -hmm. um, as a male athlete, you know, my four years we were, you know, it's certain body fat, certain weight, certain all this, and I really struggle with that. And so, like now, I have a new trainer who's like, "Man, you know, forget the scale. Like, where do you feel comfortable at?" Right. No, absolutely. I think it's funny because our freshman year we did like bod pods, um, and I remember I started out as at a certain percentage, and after our fall, like we worked so hard, and I was like, "Can't wait to see what my new number is." And I feel like athletes really a lot of us are perfectionists and we really obsess about numbers because we're surrounded by numbers. It's our stats. It's everything, you know, everyone's judging us by these numbers. And I remember going in and my bod pod hadn't changed, like even to the, I mean, it was like after the decimal point, it was identical. And I just remember feeling so defeated. And, and that just causes you to work harder and go more into this spiral. And I think that what made me such a good athlete and teammate also made me so sick. Like I wanted to go the extra mile, do the extra workout, you know, eat right, all of these things that it's like, it's 
it's not healthy and it ends up fueling um, disordered eating and eating disorders. And if you are predisposed to having that issue, sports can be really, really detrimental. And I think had I not made the decision to take a, a leave from sports for the six months that I did, that I wouldn't have been able to, um, to fully recover from that. I would have just stayed in limbo between like being healthy and recovered and being really sick. What advice do you have for athletes in terms of finding that right balance? I think that you have to um, get as much support around you as you can, because um, especially when you're in that mindset of, even if you're struggling with disordered eating, if you don't have people around you who are gonna offset that like diet culture message that we're so often getting in sports, you're just gonna continue down a really negative path because you know, what I found was that there was only so much therapy and therapeutic settings to offset the sports setting that I had. It was like these two polar opposite worlds that I was trying to decide which one I wanted to buy into. Um, and I think after a while, it really helped that like my coaches were really wanting to help me and wanting to understand. And, you know, our sports dietitian was very like health at every size and intuitive eating. And I think that the more I had people in the sports realm who were trying to create this healthy balance and remind me of a healthy balance, um, that was the only way it was possible for me to even be in the sports world, whether I was a player or a student coach or anything, um, but to be in that world and still be okay. You know, you talked about support, you talked about, you know, coaches, teammates. Um, how did your coaches and teammates help you through your decision to step away from softball? Yeah, so my um, pitching coach, uh, her name's Chelsea Dobbins. She was a part of it from the beginning. So like when I first started struggling, I reached out to her and she was like my rock throughout the entire process. Um, and I've never had a coach that she so strongly wanted what was best for me as a person and not me as an athlete. And I thought that, you know, given that we only had four to five pitchers on staff at a time for her to put me first rather than to be like, Ooh, you know, it's another body that we need. Um, I, you know, that was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. We were in the middle of our fall season, you know, we were gearing up for the spring and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to leave school um, and leave my team and doing that too. And had I not had them kind of like giving me not permission, but their support in that decision, I don't think I would have been able to make such a big leap of faith, I guess, in my recovery. So, you know, their presence, especially Coach Dobbins, was just just huge in, in helping me take that step. How important is it in general to have supportive, caring coaches that care for you outside of sport? I mean, it's, it, it's huge. And my journey... Like, I genuinely don't know if I would be here if it wasn't for them. And I think, you know, especially Coach Dobbins, I tell, I tell her that frequently and like thank her for everything she's done. And, and I think that unless you're the person that's ever experienced it, it's knowing all those moments where like you were like, I don't know, like this, this doesn't feel good anymore and I don't want to be here. And remembering those moments where teammates came up to you and 
you know, were nice out of nowhere or coaches gave you support when they didn't need to, or they had a conversation with you before they went home from the field. It's all those moments that like reminded you, okay, I can keep doing this. And unless you're the person experiencing that level of despair and having people, you know, it's, it's something as small as like giving someone a hug that you don't even think about, but when you're the person that's like hurting so badly, um, the impact that that can have is immense. And as cliche as it sounds like it can ultimately like save a teammate or your player's life at the end of the day, if they're struggling. No, I definitely agree with you. And I, I think that it's very important to have um, coaches who care about you outside of school because at the end of the day, sports can end. Um, what advice do you have for incoming freshmen in terms of making that relationship with coaches? And then what advice do you have for coaches in terms of making that relationship with incoming players? Yeah, I think for players, well, I'll start with coaches because I feel like coaches, it's kind of easier. I think that um, with coaches, it's so important to understand your players off of the field. Um, and I think that that can be as simple as having a conversation after a practice with a player or, you know, having them come to the field or stadium before and just like sitting down and getting to know them as people because everybody has a past that nobody knows about, you know, and I feel like when you come into a, um, when you come into a university as a student athlete, I feel like people have like preconceived ideas about every, every individual. And um, I just feel like there's so much more to each athlete that sometimes coaches have no idea about um, beyond like the nice conversations and recruiting where like nothing goes beyond the surface. I think that it's so important to get to know get to know your athletes and make them feel safe enough to open up to you. Because I mean, I reached out to coach Dobbins immediately when I started experiencing like a really big spike in my anxiety and panic. And that allowed her to be a part of it and to help me through it both on the field and off. And had I not felt safe telling her that um, I wouldn't have been able to have that kind of safe space. And I think that for athletes, I know it, it's hard because it depends on the coach that you have, but I think that there's so much power in being vulnerable and, you know, there's different levels of vulnerability. Like you don't have to dump your entire life out to your coach, but I think that sometimes we all want to be so like tough, everything's good, I'm fine, like let's go play. And it's like, you can only be as good as your health is like you if you're letting your health deteriorate because you want to keep this mask on that you're fine, ultimately your playing is going to be hurt by it as well. And your performance is going to suffer. Um, so I think that whether you're vulnerable with your teammates or with your coaches or with people that you're meeting in college, it's creating that new network um, of support and people around you so that you're not isolated. Uh, tell us a little bit about the transition back into being a full-time college student and student athlete again. Yeah. So after treatment, like after I withdrew. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was completely done with school and softball for that kind of, I'd say like a four month span. Um, and 
luckily because I had such supportive coaches, they really worked with me transitioning me back into um, being a full-time student and um, athlete. Like I was planning on red shirting that junior season. And then um, prior to COVID, one of our pitchers got hurt. So I came back and threw like, I think two innings over the season, but I was really taking it easy and like just trying to get around the girls again. And I think I was going to like two lifts a week on my own, which was um, just another, like they were really able to make me feel comfortable. Like I didn't want to work out with all the girls at that time. Like I wanted to kind of have more like individuals when I was in the weight room because I hadn't worked out in four months. So um, I was really behind and I was trying to make that transition and um, they were really, really helpful. And then in terms of academics, I was underloading at the time. Um, so I took nine hours for a couple semesters and actually ended up staying on time because of um, summer school, which was really, really nice. Nice perk of being stuck in uh, Chapel Hill for the summer. But um, that was, a, it was an easier transition than I expected it to be. Um, and I think my professors were super supportive too. And I think that was also because I was very open about what what was going on. And I think everyone has different comfort levels with that. Um, and it's not that you need to tell everyone everything, but I think that, you know, the more you let people know that something's going on um, and you're genuine about it, the more they want to help. And I really felt that way at UNC. When you look at, when you look back at your time at UNC, what is kind of the most memorable moment for you? Um, I think probably coming back this season, um, which we were at Clemson. So we were about halfway through our season and, um, we'd appealed to the NCAA to overturn my, um, medical retirement. And, you know, I hadn't thrown out on the field in maybe 11 months. Um, and I had just been like lightly throwing in the bullpen or behind a net to some of our girls um, during practice. And so it was, I went in and I threw a complete game against Clemson. And I mean, I got just crushed because they were very good. But, you know, the last time I'd thrown a seven inning game was my, the first weekend of my freshman season. Um, and it was like, I was always capable of doing it, but mentally I like told myself I couldn't. And I knew that like coming back, there were expectations. I was winning just by stepping out on the field, um, which was such a different feeling for me, but it was so significant to be able to get out there. And, you know, for the first time in two years, my hands didn't go numb while I was throwing. Um, and just different things that I used to panic about. I like showed myself I could do it because ultimately softball was one of the biggest areas of anxiety in terms of performance, like, and just severe panic. Um, and so that was pretty special and very memorable for me, just on a very personal level, even outside of athletics. Um, during your battle with all of this, you know, you found time to, to write a blog that kind of pulled back the curtain to everything you were going through what ultimately led you to want to start this blog and what did it feel like to be so open and vulnerable? Yeah, so I, I waited a little bit to start that. Um, 
until I was out of treatment and felt like, I feel like I didn't want to be the person to be giving advice um, when I was still in a really disordered um, place, because I feel like it's, yeah, I just wanted to be in a really healthy space. Um, and I think another part that kind of led me to write that blog was, um, I was, it felt like we just were trying so hard to get me help. And we kept like making wrong turns or like not getting the help that I needed um, and not knowing where to look for it. Um, and so that was a big part of writing that blog was to like try to explain the spots where we went wrong or where things could have gone different so that other people didn't have to go through that obstacle and they could just find the help right away. Um, because it was a very, very challenging you know, 12 months of trying to, to get help and not being able to get in with anybody. Um, so a big part of that was kind of trying to say where I went wrong so that other people could just get the help quicker. Um, one of the blog posts you wrote was titled my biggest step towards better body image. Can you talk about some of the ways you were empowered to improve the view of your, your body? Yeah, I think, I feel like it was very, unintentional. Um, I feel like I was always thinking like, I'm forever going to struggle with how I feel like I look. Um, and there were certain things that I felt like I noticed really helping throughout my treatment. Um, and that was the biggest one was social media and, um, unfollowing people that made me feel bad about myself, which it's nothing against that person. It's just, if they make you question your own self-worth and appearance like it's not worth seeing their posts every day and having to feel that way um and i think adding people that were health at every size intuitive eating were you know preaching these healthy messages that were helping me get closer to my recovery um and also seeing different bodies which sounds so like it sounds so small but when you're scrolling through social media and you see more people that look like you than you do people who are way smaller. Um, it's very helpful. Like it really, um, it changes the way you see yourself. It changes the, the things you think are normal. Um, and that was huge for me, especially since, you know, I was going from being in a place of a severe eating disorder where I wanted to follow things that were like, cut this out, do that. Like I wanted people to tell me what to do to be better or to be a better athlete. And all of a sudden those messages weren't serving me anymore. Um, and they were very, for the first time, like when I was healing, I was, I understood what like being triggered really meant. Um, and that's the thing is like sitting in that, like this makes me uncomfortable and then being like, okay, let's unfollow them. Cause that's no longer helpful to me. Um, but that was huge for me you look back at your journey, what is the one thing that you want people to most remember about your story? I think the biggest takeaway that I had that I now want other people to know is that like, there is always hope as much as, you know, I feel like that's very cliche, but I mean, when I felt like it couldn't get any worse, 
you know, it, it just kept going downhill. And I remember my coach being like, this is, it, it's going to get better. Like, I promise you, there's always hope. Like you just have to find the little things. Um, and that's something now, like every day I look for the little things that make me happy or that remind me, you know, that I'm happy to be alive and to be here. Um, and so really savoring those moments are what ultimately helped me heal and know that like, as low as I was, I'm now the happiest I've ever been. And so like, even at that lowest point, knowing that you're not going to feel that way forever. Um, and knowing that nothing, nothing's impossible if you believe that things can get better, because I never thought I'd ever step foot on a softball field again. Like I thought my career was completely over and, you know, with a twist of fate, it wasn't. Um, and I kind of got to rewrite the way that ended, but had I not been been able to believe that there was light when I didn't feel like there was any anymore, I wouldn't have ever been able to experience that. That's awesome. No, appreciate that. Um, Katie, Grace, thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. Really appreciate your openness during this discussion. Uh, and I know our audience does as well. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Um, and thank you to those who are tuning in as we continue to discuss the important topic of mental health. For more about my journey, you can also check out the One in Five podcast on iTunes, Spotify. This has been College Sports Conversations presented by the NCAA. We look forward to talking to you again.